Oh no. <laughs> I've realized listening back to these things, I've, have you noticed how creepy my chair is? It's like whenever I move, can you hear that? Yeah, it's a bit creepy. 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 <laughs> bit creepy. What do you do? Yeah. Yep. Dan, how are you doing? I don't know if you've been having this weather down there, but it's been a lovely summer here in England. Uh, it has been it has been very nice. We've had some thunderstorms and and occasional showers over the past few days. It's nice, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, things are getting odd. It's very nice. It seems to be going on forever, and everybody's remarking that it's odd. And I'm just, I'm, I don't know what the summer is like here. So, pretending <laughs> yeah. that it's normal. But <laughs> as we know, nothing is normal yeah. with well, this weather. Yeah, with this weather. This um, weather. I'm at the point in the in the growing season. Oh, happy solstice, by the way. It is happy solstice, solstice today, I believe. Happy Look solstice, at that. Everyone. Recording on the solstice. It's good go. luck. <laughs> <laughs> They always tell podcasters in podcasting school, they always say, whenever you can, record on the solstice. Um, uh, I'm at the point in my growing season where I'm like, I've harvested like 70 fucking bulbs of garlic and basically, you know, just like an apocalyptic amount of broad beans, as we all knew was coming. But now I'm like, oh God, what am I going to put in these beds? Mm. Because I've, I was, you know, I was just like, I had a couple of weeks where I was like, everything is going along smoothly. Everything is perfect. And now I've just been confronted with like, oh, fuck, I haven't been sowing any seeds. Oh, for like I, forgot the last <laughs> so, I forgot things actually got to go in here after this. Summer is not over. In fact, yeah. it has literally just begun. So yeah. <laughs> any suggestions? Let me know, listeners, because I'm uh, probably going to have to just go to the garden center and just take whatever they'll give me. Buy some plants. Yeah. We'll There's, worse options. There's worse options. Yeah, that's how I wound up. Do you remember last year when I just had those like four like sporadic celery plants? Right. Planted? Those lasted <laughs> through the entire. Two seasons, they? <laughs> they did. They lasted through the entire winter, and I was. You like, actually harvested any celery from them? I have, but then I took them out, and the roots were just like massive. I was like, okay, this isn't good for anything. <laughs> it like destroyed several of my beds when I was taking them out. I was like, okay, maybe this wasn't a good idea. What are you gonna do? Uh-huh. Well, maybe they were like cultivating aerating breaking up the soil that's what you want yeah it? yeah exactly celery is a root vegetable isn't it yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> yes nitrogen fixing celery good yeah. it's better mm. than having nothing growing i guess mm. Mm. i feel like i must have I, I must have been late with all of my planting i mean i know that i was in the sense that i planted broad beans this um spring and rather than the last winter uh but i have some beans coming along um, lovely but it's taken everything quite a long time to develop. I'm finally harvesting salad leaves, which I would have thought would have been much sooner. Um, mm. Mm. But I too am in the position of needing to start planting new things soon. Yeah. And, I, and I've had, I have had some very sorry looking tomato plants sitting around for a very long time, which I finally <laughs> put in some, so some grow bags, but I think it would have been a mercy just to put them in the compost rather than actually try to plant them. So yeah. I'll keep you apprised of how my tomatoes come on. <laughs> Everyone will be waiting with bated breath. Uh, bated breath, no doubt. Bated <laughs> breath. Yeah. I um this past weekend, I had a bit of a. I've been kind of not down in the dumps, but a little bit like, oh, that's right, things are in fact going quite badly with the world. And I, I think one of the things that set it off was that recently, I don't know if you know much about the. Um, they've been having to do like you know all of the states along the Colorado River have been having to do talks in America about like who's going to get what water, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because there's just not enough for the current agreement. Um, and kind of surprisingly, all of the states agreed to something and now it's being like combed through by the federal government, right. To see like, well, is this actually going to work? And one of the things that happened unsurprisingly is, uh, states like Arizona kind of got screwed over, right. Because it's like, you just can't have as much water as you need. You know, California, unsurprisingly kind of like took the lion's share of it. Um, 
And so one of the things that happened as a result of that, um, that's slowly been happening is cities like Phoenix have been kind of like telling real estate developers, hey, you actually need to stop these development projects because we just don't have the water to like supply these facilities, things like that. Um, and one, and I've just been thinking about that a lot, right? Because Arizona, not a particularly uh, hot hub of progressive values, um, real estate developers, not a progressive, pr particularly progressive uh, group of people. And I've just been thinking like, what are the odds of just like complete climate fascism happening one of these days in one of these states, right? Where you get like a Bonapartist, like either mayor, governor, somebody like that, who just like through, you know, disgusting sicko ideology gets in power and is just like, we're going to let all of, you know, you and your woke climate change, we don't need any of this. Let's just let all of the agriculture and all of the goddamn petty bourgeois real estate developers have whatever they want. And I had a bit of a like, Oh, fuck. Are we just, is that the path we're going down now? Because you're already starting to see, you know, like people, real estate developers and, you know, farmers, like big farmers in California being like, you telling me I can't plant my damn almonds, right? So it's just like, oh, God, is this the next wave of it? Oh, dear, what's happening? Uh -huh. Well, I love the idea of a dictatorship led by like like um, estate agents or <laughs> realtors. What would you <laughs> Fake tans and like, just uh, like an army <laughs> of mini Trumps, basically. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I don't know what the English equivalent of that would be. If it would just be like sewage companies being like, you telling me I can't dump shit in the water. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. yeah, suffice to say, climate change maybe not going to be bringing out the best in our uh, capitalists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like that's an interesting point, actually. I don't know who the who the kind of like um, the main constituency of like libertarian bourgeois reaction is in this country. <laughs> I mean, you, you you bring up a funny point of the sort of like water companies, but like they're completely in hoc or the government is completely in hoc with them or, or vice versa mm, kind sure. of thing. Like um, they're at liberty to do what they do because they're entirely protected by I don't know. Yeah, government's willingness to just say to the people, "Yeah, th we don't care that the, <laughs> the seas and rivers are full of human excrement." You know, I was telling you this recently about just like how, like late capitalism, and that's not a phrase I use a lot, but like it does feel like late capitalism. It's like, oh, what a lovely day! I'd like to go for a swim in the ocean. Let me just check my like state mandated app to see if there's enough. Like, what is the sewage ratio? Can I go swimming in this part of the, <laughs> part of the country? Yeah. Let me just check yeah. my app. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but at least we've got an app for it. So, you know. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. State, like capitalism provides us with oceans full of shit, but it does provide us with a. <laughs> Uh, technological infrastructure necessary to produce apps to tell us about it. So. Yeah, just like the fucking COVID app, the NHS COVID app, which literally I could never use because my phone wasn't new enough. So it was just like, oh, you need the COVID app to get in here. And I'll just be like, my phone can't do it. And they'd be like, no, you can't come in. I'd just be like, oh, sick. Glad they spent like billions of pounds on this fucking app. Well, maybe that was the actual ultimate intention was to just sure. deny admittance of everybody to anywhere and then. I don't know. Then nobody got COVID. Presumably yeah. you didn't get COVID because of the app, though, Jackson. Yeah, who knows? Maybe. Who knows? Maybe I've just had COVID in perpetuity since then. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? That's the business we need to get into, Dan, is app developing for, like, just graft. You know what I mean? Just get a government contract to make, like, an app that you, like, hire out, like, two lemurs and a monkey to make. And then just be like, well, you know, several billion dollars over that one. 
Climate change. It is, in okay, fact, listen, happening. There's pictures of your app ideas. <laughs> we'll the auxiliary make no efforts to make them happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I, enough faffing around, Dan. I, we have a lot to get to today. Um, we have several several decades of extremely complicated history. <laughs> Actually, several centuries of extremely complicated history to get through. So um, we are back with our history stuff, which is very exciting. Um, I don't know about you. So what we're reading, we're reading the kind of main essay, collection of essays, long form essay, Sorghum and Steel from um, Chinese communist collective Shuang's first journal. We read their book a while ago. Actually, I think almost exactly a year ago, which is very weird. Um, it was all about COVID. It was called Social Contagion. It was very, very good. And this one is all about um, this essay that we read all about the kind of transition to socialism, quote unquote, and the development of the socialist developmental regime uh, ushered in by the Chinese Communist Party, how they got to power, the kind of material realities of the China that existed before them, or rather kind of didn't exist. Um, really, really good stuff. A lot to get to. Um, once again, very impressed by Schwang. They're just very good. They're very clear-headed. And one of the things I, I liked the most about this was at the very beginning or somewhere in it, they were just like... Um, you know, we're not studying this to pick sides, right? We're studying it to better understand where we are today so that we can then develop strategy. Like they're they're not coming out and being like, all hail Chairman Mao, right? Or like, you know, all hail Deng and his beautiful reforms. They're just like, there's no point. <laughs> yeah, that's what I enjoyed the most about this. I realized halfway through reading it that like they'd been, up until that point, they'd been like one mention of Chairman Mao. And yeah, literally. Sporadic, yeah. sporadic use of proper names. And he does get mentioned a few more times later on, but ju just generally in the context of um, describing partisan factions within the Chinese Communist Party, rather than actually presenting a history which is centered around certain key figures and their contributions to proceedings. And they say from the outset that they're trying to present a sort of like materialist history, which escapes some of the sort of ideological baggage that comes along with discussion of communist China, either the ideolo ideology presented by uh, the Chinese Communist Party itself at any points in this history, or even sort of Western narratives of what China is. Um, and rather, they're trying to reconstruct or construct um, sort of uh, a history of China predicated on sort of historical materialism, which looks to the sort of contingent historical factors which impacted um, the development of Chinese communism into Chinese capitalism, as they would say it now exists, and very deliberately escape sort of like focusing on great figures in history kind of thing. Yeah, and it's it's funny too, because it's like, you really don't need any of the propaganda that comes along with the ideology of kind of on one hand, like Cold War liberal ideology of like, you know, Chairman Mao personally strangled 70 million people with his bare hands, right? Or like on the other hand, like Chinese communist propaganda of like the Great Leap Forward, everyone was so happy and it was all so good. And don't ask about anything that happened in between the 50s and now, right? Everything's always just been good. You really don't need any of that to well, on one hand, just be like, wowed. And I, impressed is kind of the wrong word, but just like, holy shit, some of the numbers in here about the way, how quickly China was developed are staggering. 
But then on the other hand, like you really don't need Cold War propaganda to be like, this was a fucking disaster. <laughs> right. So they do a really good job here of not even towing the line, just be like, here's history as, you know, best we can relate it. And um, it is much appreciated. Um, so I guess, should we start at the beginning, I guess? I, disclaimer, first of all, go fucking read it for yourselves. There's no way we're going to be able to get all of this information across. It was about 150 pages, something like that. It was a bit of a slog, I might say. But that isn't because it was written badly. It was just because, you know, Dan and I don't necessarily <laughs> evenly space our reading out throughout the two weeks that we have to do it. <laughs> today was a bit of a mad rush for me. <clears throat> uh, very yeah, dense. Yeah, it's it's dense. And yeah, I, I think we definitely both experienced a bit of a slog. It's also... Um, it, I also felt like it rushed through a lot of things. So there's a lot of like, oh, I feel like I could have had more information there. Um, so there was, there was, there were some areas where I felt like um, it, it could have been denser. Um, but it's wonderfully concise and wonderfully well written. So, um, which is what we much like. to be commended <laughs> and recommended. Yes, please go and read it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I, okay, we'll start. We'll start at the beginning. I mean, the period of time that this covers is kind of like a lot of. It's like Ming Dynasty, which is like, I'm probably gonna get this wrong, but I like, I think like 1200s, 1300s through the 1600s. And then it's the Qing Dynasty. And then it's basically like eras of warlords, Kuomintang, Chinese Communist Party, right? So I guess we'll start a little bit maybe with the Ming, just because this is kind of where you get like an analysis of pre-capitalist modes of production in China. And I do really think you have to just say like pre-capitalist. And you, cause like, if you say feudal, it's like, I don't, what does that mean? Does that, is that the same thing in Luxembourg as it is in Paris, as it is mm. in like fucking like Beijing? You know what I mean? Like it just isn't. So yeah, they, I think they say tributary more often than they say feudal, yeah. don't they? Not that yeah. I would claim to know what a tributary mode of production was. <laughs> it's the cool thing to say. To feudal mode of production. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, the cool kids say tributary. So we'll just say tributary. <laughs> it's much more vague, I think, but that's better. So, I mean, they begin yeah. this with a story about a guy named Galliot Pereira, who's this mercenary in the 1500s, European mercenary in the 1500s, who goes to go, um, he signs on with like a Siamese kingdom to basically smuggle goods in and around Southeast Asia. And he gets captured by, um, by imperial agents of the Ming dynasty, right? And he gets thrown in prison and then he escapes and it's this whole thing. But one of the reasons they bring it up is because he, we still have his writings about what China was like back then in the 1500s. And it's kind of like one of the important Western um, sources for what China was like, even though there are plenty of sources for what China was like they're just in Chinese. So Western scholars are like, nah, I can't really be bothered. Um, but he basically explains what it was like as an outsider. And the reason they bring it up is because when he speaks to people all over Southern China, he's like, wow, China, huh? pretty cool. And they're like, what the fuck is China? What are you talking about? And the reason they bring this up is because the peasants, the imperial agents that he speaks to explain that China is like many different countries, many different languages, many different peoples, with one ruler, sure, the Great Ming, I think is what they call them or something like that. Um, but still many kind of like more or less semi-independent polities, they all kind of pay tribute, right? And so the reason they bring this up is because the story of late 1800s through basically like 1900s China, the Communist Party, the Kuomintang, is the story of creating a China, right? China has always been this economic category, they say. And 
the struggles between the liberal nationalists, between the warlords, and finally between the victorious Chinese Communist Party was a struggle to see who was inevitably going to be able to create China, right? And um, turns out to be a pretty tall order, <laughs> and mm-hmm. one that was pretty difficult even for like a massively brutal, you know, communist party. So, yeah, they sort of present the the idea that the idea of China to the nationalists, and then also subsequently to the communist party as well as kind of like a mythic history like that there is this ideological idea that china has this great history that stretches back um two centuries or what have you um and really based on that analysis of how the sort of like tributary um form of uh the chinese economy chinese chinese economy existed for those multiple millennia um, was incredibly decentralized. um, And as you say, one where China didn't really exist other than as a kind of economic project in the, under those conditions, an economic project of um, owing tribute to an emperor. Um, But obviously the myth of a united China is reinvoked by the nationalists and then by the communists because there's this requirement to create um, or a desire to create a united um, economic unit. Um, for the nationalists, it's about ushering in ushering China into the capitalist mode of production and um, uniting it with the greater world economy and um, uh, expanding trade and what have you. Um, for the communists, there is that desire, but also this is this, this autarkic necessity that comes about because of the material conditions that the um, Chinese Communist Party finds itself in. But yeah, it's important to say that um, all throughout this essay, um, a central part of the analysis in multiple places is how this sort of like historical legacy of how China was organized continues to impact um, and have an impact on uh, the nature of what's called the the, um, socialist developmental regime, right? Um, Which they present as being a non-mode of production. So they present as not being capitalist or not being socialist or um, not being anarchist or what have you, um, not being feudal either but maintaining little elements of all of these and sort of holding them into some kind of uneasy synthesis. Um, And the tributary elements of that, the history of that that sort of nature of organizing a Chinese economy continues to have a legacy all the way up until capitalism really takes hold in the late 70s and 80s. Yeah, and and still kind of like an issue, it's like ongoing issue, right? I mean, like the Kuomintang still exists, which I think is, you know, hey, there they are, it's still going. Uh Um, So, I mean, before we we get into actual Chinese Communist Party stuff, let's talk, I guess, maybe a little bit about the kind of precursors to this. So they talk about, um, as you were saying, like during the Ming Dynasty, which was, again, it goes Ming Dynasty, Qing Dynasty, then the kind of like warlord Pierre Kuomintang, and then the Chinese Communist Party. So the Ming Dynasty... The way that they organized their kind of tributary mode of production was, as you're saying, there were like these kind of competing rural gentry slash other units, kind of like subunit country kind of things that all paid tribute to the Ming emperor. But 
they were kind of like in conflict with each other every now and then. The rural gentry and the emperor were kind of competing for the peasant surplus, right? And basically all the way up until like the 1900s, China was between what, like 90 and 80% peasant. So like we are talking like mainly a peasant, even for this massive part of the world, right? Like it was mainly peasants, right? But because there was this um, kind of competition between the rural gentry and the imperial state as it existed, right? The Ming Dynasty had to be a little bit kind of tricky with the way that it got um, the majority of the surplus from the peasants. So they did something that would kind of like have uh, over time kind of had really wide reaching implications for China up until this day, which was kind of counterposed to like a typical picture in the mind's eye uh, of European feudalism. They basically encouraged petty industry petty industry in the oh my fucking phone god damn it imagine not turning your phone off while you're podcasting they encouraged petty industry in the rural countryside which was which was really really fascinating and they kind of make this as kind of like an argument for why capitalism didn't develop as such in china right because they say that like there were these small towns where commerce was developed but like dispersed and there weren't really like many examples of big cities where you had like concentrated capital and so as opposed to in Europe, where you had cities getting developed, where there was like really intensive capital production for commerce, uh, and then eventually we would get, you know, capitalism, like that didn't really happen. And one of the fascinating things here is they say that like, we always think of the town and the city as being counterposed to feudalism, right? Like we think of feudalism as like this, you know, basically just peasants out in the countryside and they have their little communes and that's it. But they're basically saying here that that's actually not true at all. And that's a really European centric way of viewing things. So the important thing to get out of this is that they had in China commercialization without development, which is really fascinating. And I wonder what you make of this, because I, I always flip back and forth between like commercialization thesis, poisoned brain being like capitalism was inevitable. You, you could have some other planet many, you know, light years away and they probably would have gotten capitalism anyway. But then also being like, oh, fuck, it was so contingent. And I don't know which one's scarier because like how insane would it be if capitalism was just like a complete fluke? <laughs> out of like Western Europe, it would just be like, oh my God, like seriously, we could have had like millenarian peasant production. Are you kidding me? Uh, what a shame. I mean, I don't, I don't have a definite answer for that, but I am always inclined toward that kind of alternate history thinking. Um, and I suppose don't want to think of it as being completely, to, to acknowledge a complete historical determinism, you know? Um, and I think it seems evident that the course taken by Western Europe was one that was particularly unique and there were various different conditions in different parts of the world that uh, where elements of commercialization, elements of sort of market economies or developed trade or um, developed monetary systems existed where capitalism didn't come into existence. That seems to be the central argument of that book that we enjoy so much, Ellen Meeksin's Woods, The Origins of Capitalism, like she proposes. <laughs> it hasn't been a little while since she talked about it, although um, uh, there is a footnote to her in that section that oh, you were that. talking about. Um, where, because obviously she would, she, she would posit the possibility of there being a fully feudal town, you know, one that isn't part of a trajectory toward the development of capitalism. Um, but yeah, it's interesting in this context because like here you have sort of pockets of commercialization, pockets of um, trade, 
pockets of um, industrial work done alongside um, agricultural work in certain localities, which it would be my inclination to say that are sort of for one one reason why they're prevented from developing into capitalism is because of that sort of dispersed economic nature of the tributary mode of production as it existed in China, right? The, one of the things you need for capitalism is a sufficiently large integrated market where goods, the value of goods and the value of labor can be compared and therefore labor productivity can be disciplined. Um, and there just aren't the conditions for that there, right? Whether that's the sole determinant, I would I'd be reluctant to say, but clearly it's an important one. Post-peasant millenarian capitalism, man, that's what we want. <laughs> so, so yeah, that was all really fascinating and just a way of completely kicking the like Eurocentric, like this is how capitalism develops. So it's how it would have had to have happened right out of your brain, right? Like I really found that really refreshing. And again, it was one of these bits where it's like, fuck, I want to read like a whole book just about this. You know, those books yeah. presumably exist, but <laughs> what was I going to do? Read the footnotes? Come on. <laughs> Um, so then by the time we get to the late 1800s and the early 19, early 1900s, basically all the way leading up to kind of like World War II, um, and the collapse of the Qing dynasty, like we, the last imperial dynasty, we get like a formal subsumption of China basically into capitalism. And so like formal subsumption, real subsumption, we talked about this before, like formal subsumption just means like all of these pre-tributary modes of organizations and maybe I should say structures basically getting put out onto the world market. So all that really meant was just like, I think they say by the beginning of the 1900s leading into kind of the Chinese civil war, about 40% of food was going to kind of the global market, which is like, oh yeah, that's like nothing to sneeze at. This is like China becoming, you know, slowly capitalist, I suppose. Um, but then World War One comes along, the Great Depression follows, and um, this leads to like a massive trade shrinkage. And China's kind of just like, right as it had started to open up and started to be formally subsumed, all of a sudden these markets kind of get taken away from it. And it's kind of in this crisis period. And this is where we get one of the first examples, kind of what we bought up a little bit before, but like the first examples of what I, something that I thought was really, really good in this was the authors basically really putting forward a solid materialism and kind of smacking the ideology out of your head and being like this closure of China to global markets during the great depression, just as it had started to get things started is what gave rise to attempts to create a national Chinese economy. It was not kind of the other way around, which is like, and then these enlightened, you know, people in the KMT with their like, you know, very good ideas about liberal nationalism came along and decided to, you know, out of nowhere, hey, but what about if we had a like liberal nationalist, you know, country, wouldn't that be great? Realistically, it was kind of this crisis that led to um, the formation of kind of one of the big players in this period of history, which is the Kuomintang, which is like ostensibly a uh, liberal nationalist political party that for a while um, ruled China and was like, you know, on again, off again, at the beginning, kind of an ally of the Chinese Communist Party, then not so much because of like several massacres where the KMT kind of killed a lot of communists, but we'll get to that. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because this is like the exact same milieu, right, that the Chinese Communist Party came out of, which I thought was really interesting because like the Chinese Communist Party and the Kuomintang were both like different answers to the same question of like, how are we going to make a China? How are we going to make a national economy in this period of crisis? And obviously 
CCP, a little bit more radical than the KMT. Mm -hmm. Well, I was really fascinated by the the impact on this history of the eradication of that first installation in instantiation of a Chinese Communist Party. Um, the Chinese Communist Party was formed, um, I think, in 1921 or around that kind of era um, with the intention of joining the Communist International. This is the Communist International, Lenin's Communist International we talked about a few episodes ago. Um, and they were, as you would, as you would imagine, based upon most... Um, the sort of trajectory of most significant communist parties, they were initially a urban and an intellectual movement, i.e. a movement made up by, um, I guess, liberal enlightened elites and um, members of the intelligentsia. Um, and they were located in the cities and they basically allied with the Nationalist Party to overthrow the sort of last vestiges of... Um, uh, Chinese monarchy and institute a republic um, and at, at, actually at the behest of the the communist international they were they were instructed to form this alliance um, and then were subsequently massacred by uh, the new Republic, republican liberal regime um, to the point where they effectively ceased to exist in the cities at all um, and continued on purely as a sort of like as a rural formation because um th that was a place where they were sort of nominally safe from these reprisals or this repression um and that continues to be a lingering legacy that um that, that sets the chinese communist party up as a fundamentally rural um uh, party the basis of which comes from the peasantry um and so you have the sort of like military takeover of the country in sort of chairman mao's long march um and then the chinese communist party comes to rule all of these um nascent sort of like capitalist uh and port cities which actually have no basis no sort of communist tradition within them kind of thing so um, from the off, there is a great difficulty in working out how to take over um, an institute, sort of like technological development under those conditions, basically entirely because of this historical legacy of the the massacring of the first Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, not not exactly off on a good foot with the common turn either, where they're like ally with the KMT and then the KMT immediately turns around and just murders all of them. It's yeah. like, thanks a lot for that, like fucking teleology of like, listen, complete your bourgeois revolution, then we can talk. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know that. I don't actually know how a lot of that played out, but it feels very paternalistic and like, you know. How, yeah, I don't know. I don't fucking know. But it's worth it's worth pausing on the Chinese Civil War, I think, for a moment, just because, like, as you say, Chinese Communist Party founded in 1921, the KMT and the, um, the Comintern ally in 1923. And during this period, the Communist Party, as you say, and the KMT are basically kind of kind of on the same side. Officially, they are on the same side fighting against these last vestiges of like the warlords. Right. Um and then in 1927, you have the Shanghai Massacre, which is particularly brutal, where basically not just communists, but trade unionists and like a lot of just skilled workers in Shanghai are just rounded up by the KMT and killed or disappeared. 
And we get our first just absolutely insane number. This was just something where it was just like, you know, this happened and then moving on. During this period in 1927, about 300,000 people, communist trade unionists and radicals were just murdered. (laughs) It's just like, holy fucking shit. Just gives you an idea of like how big the scale of what we're talking about is here. This isn't like, you know, a tiny country in uh, fucking like Europe, right? Or even like a big country in Europe. This is... China, even compared to the Soviet Union. This is big. We're talking about a big place. Um, and so it is really interesting, right? Because they they make the point where it's like the Communist Party actually did have support of a number of skilled workers in the cities, right? What that actually means, I'm not entirely certain, but you're right. After all of them are murdered, then basically they only have the support of the peasants. But another thing that I thought was really interesting was that they kind of make the point with that the peasant rebellions and all of that were incredibly organic. And actually what happened, it wasn't the CCP in these early years that started these rebellions. Actually, it was the peasants themselves who were on their own millinery and kind of like righteous, you know, fuck everything, this sucks, rebellion thing. And the CCP just basically attached itself to them, right? This was completely organic energy. And the Communist Party came in and they were like, hey, nobody else is listening to you. We'll listen to you. And the peasants were like, okay, I mean, I guess it's kind of weird that you're talking about a bourgeois revolution, but like, we'll fight for you. You know what I mean? That seems to be the whole trajectory of the Chinese Communist Party throughout this entire piece is to, that they first encounter something which is like hostile to them or external to them, and then gradually subsume it and gain hegemony over it. Um, one of the reasons why they're so sort of central to this narrative, and I, I found it very strange that there was sort of no discussion of significant opposition, like I, or like... Um, or the way this, the narrative is presented is of a political formation which has almost hegemonic economic power and ability to determine events, sort of dictate political and economic goings on. Um, and if that is true and not just an omission, an omission presumably for the for the benefit of writing a concise piece rather than a deliberate hiding of an important piece of information, um, if that is true, then it's sort of like um, it does speak to what you were just saying of like that sort of initial phase of them subsuming something. Um, they talk interestingly to begin with about the sort of history of Chinese anarchism and how there was this quite a significant. Um, uh, Chinese anarchist movement, which um, presented as a possibility a kind of like uh, rural um, communist anarchism that could have formed in China, given that China was this sort of like very dispersed collection of independent economic units all the way down to the sort of like family level or the village level kind of thing. Um and I actually, I actually can't remember why it was that the anarchists sort of like lost the favor of the peasants. I think they should have tried to organize some kind of rebellion, and it failed. Um, so yeah, when you go, when the listener, when you go back and read that, look out for that if that's of interest to you. Um, <laughs> but in the wake of that, uh, there is this sort of like complete subsumption of the sort of peasantry to uh, the Chinese Communist Party, I guess. This whole, yeah, you're totally right. This whole the whole history of the CCP is like how did they co-opt this organic movement, which yeah. is so brutal. And a lesson that I think we'll get onto about like maybe like 
you know, totalitarian in its just like vaguest possible sense of just like completely overarching and domineering. Uh, maybe be a little uh, cautious of political parties like that. Yeah. Um, but there's also a third player in all of well, fourth player, fucking fifth player, etc. Um, in all of this, which is Japan, right? Because in the early 30s, I think in 1932, I think I couldn't recollect that. Early 30s, whatever. Look it up. Um, Japan invaded Manchuria, right? And kind of know about this as being one of the more brutal invasions and occupations in kind of like the 20th century. I mean, obviously this is World War II. A lot of bad things going on. You don't need us to tell you that. Um, But they make a really interesting point that this for Japan, this invasion was a kind of primitive accumulation, right? A like kind of Japan went into Manchuria with the intention of just like brutally subjugating the population and building up industry so that it could move on from, again, pre-capitalist modes of production thoroughly and make itself like a world player by having like modern 20th century Taylorist production lines, right? And so, you know, we kind of know a lot of the stories about like them using, you know, slave labor in a lot of these um, factories and kind of what Schwang calls bureaucratic warlordism to kind of keep the whole thing apart. And one thing I thought was really interesting was they basically said, you might think like 20th century Taylorist production lines and slavery and, you know, bureaucratic warlords as being like counterposed to each other. (laughs) But they're like, "Mm, maybe not, maybe not as much as you think. And in fact, actually, maybe, maybe slavery and like the production line (laughs) actually go together quite well. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, brutal. Yeah, it was an interesting, another um, example of this interesting uh, merging of modes of production where what they say is one could mistake this kind of like integration of um, sort of warlordism or sort of like a sort of almost mafia element to the sort of recruitment and the disciplining of labor that happened in uh, Japanese Manchuria as being um, a remnant of how um, sort of like feudal or tributary China existed because they 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 suggest that there are pa- parallels between that sort of organizing and disciplining of labor on a local level um that are very similar to what's happening in the in the in the where are we now 1930s um 1920s um but as you say they make the interesting point that no 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 this is like this is using something to discipline labor for the purposes of transitioning it into capitalist um sort of like full capitalism i suppose yeah Uh, yeah Yeah, particularly brutal and so skipping over the chinese civil war and world war ii (laughs) perhaps um let's just say world war ii ends the soviet union invades manchuria kicks japan out um the war ends and suddenly the kuomintang are defeated and the only two nationwide I mean in China nationwide institutions left are the communist party and the military and so the question then becomes the same as the question was at the end of the 1800s fuck what do we do with everything how do we make an actual coherent economic entity out of what we're now calling China right and this is a really complicated question for a million different reasons one because you had as we say a massive majority of the country was still peasants right Then you had the coastal cities, which had developed something like industry. And then you had Manchuria, which had developed this kind of Japanese 
industry using really brutal methods and kind of not what we would think of as like really subsumed capitalist labor yet. And so it was just like, how do you balance all of these things to complicate it even more? The Chinese peasantry was involved in like small uh, uh, industry, not industry, but like, you know, producing well, I also maybe not commodities, but producing like goods, <laughs> I should say, I guess, like petty handicrafts, things like that. So the question, which is kind of what the Chinese Communist Party had to deal with for the latter half of the century was how do you deal with the constant push and pull between um, agriculture and industry, right? And kind of the rest of, I think, the essay in here of Sorghum and Steel is like trying to balance those two things, trying to balance agriculture and trying to balance industry. Because obviously the main goal of any good communist movement should be create industry and fuck everything else. That's what communism is, right? So they're trying to figure out, okay, but if you create too much industry, then you're going to need a lot of food. And so you're going to need a lot more people working in agriculture. So you're going to need more of a peasantry. But if you do that, then you're going to need like to up labor productivity and to do that, you're going to need more machines. So you're going to need more industry. And the next few decades are uh, a series of disasters that unfold for them trying to answer those questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's at, this, it's, it's sort of at this stage in the narrative where you first get an explanation of kind of what Schwong mean by saying that the socialist development regime in China um, was basically a non-mode of production. Um, and they talk about the kind of like economic circumstances that the Chinese Communist Party is sort of like the elements of which it has to sort of like try and knit an economy together with. Um, and as you say, you have these sort of port cities where, which seems to be primarily made up as like uh, capitalist industries or sort of proto-capitalist industries that are quite like small scale units and, and obviously like designed for export. Then you have like, um, Manchuria, which has the most developed, like large-scale industry, but then also what you have, I think, is regions of the country that have some kind of developed industry that have been under communist rule for quite a long time, and so what you also have operating a sort of degree of communist planning that's happening in some of these regions of China, which are governed by the Communist Party and have been for some time, and then you have a sort of like almost nascent forms of self-organization that happening in these port cities with all of these uh smaller economic units um and you have the sort of legacy of these different forms of uh organization and disciplining of labor that have gone on in manchuria um and the question sort of becomes like what kind of form of economic organization and planning can be applied to the entire country um and what are they going to choose and in the end, they end up implementing basically a system inspired by Soviet planning in the USSR. Um, thought this was a really interesting section because they seemed kind of agnostic on the question of whether actually China could have just developed some kind of peasant socialism. Because they, one of the really interesting things they they say in this, which is seems to be a, intended as a counter narrative to what's usually said about China, is like the problem of China is usually presented as being one of overcoming the sort of rural-urban divide. But actually, they sort of imply that initially that, that isn't really a problem because it doesn't really exist. There are so few people living in urban regions 
working in heaven industry that before the socialist takeover would have represented a sort of like early capitalist class that uh, working proletarian class that just just doesn't exist and so they actually turn it on its head and say actually no the problem of the rural urban divide is actually a problem of chinese socialism itself um and not something which they're required to wrestle with because of historical circumstances now as i say they seem agnostic on the idea that um the chinese communist party has to go down the route of industrialization they sort of imply that they have to because of like geopolitical circumstances like there's still the prospect of another third world war at this point maybe they're gonna have to be a, a front in a global war between communism and capitalism and also there's just the, the situation where their only potential ally is the soviet union and the soviet union is going to demand industrialization of them um but yeah, I don't know whether you had any thoughts on that idea. Of actually, maybe there's the promise of just like agrarian peasant socialism in China. <laughs> well, I think I think the main the main kind of point is that like the whole the whole moral of this story is that almost immediately, and you can kind of pick your point when you think this happens. The the communist project, as it existed, just you know a couple of like maybe it was just as small as at the beginning of like some students and some intelligentsia types in their mind. The communist project was just completely replaced by the developmental regime, right? It stopped being communism, pick your point for me, literally immediately, because they were just like, fuck, we need to develop. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, like they make the point where they're like, you can't blame them for wanting to develop. Like they were the poorest country in the world in a time when like fucking, you know, some of the most powerful people and influential people on the planet, i.e. like the people, uh, the generals in charge of the American military were like, just fucking drop nuclear bombs on China. You know what I mean? Like there are those geo uh, political concerns. There are the concerns of like, uh, you know, wanting to give, give the pet. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It makes sense. Right. Wanting to develop China if you're put in charge, because like, again, it, maybe it is just as simple as they're the poorest country on the planet and they felt like they needed to do catch up, but um, it doesn't feel like that was ever going to happen in a way that wasn't just a disaster and brutal. And this kind of like, I don't know, an idea that I've mulled around a lot is like, the function of a system is what it does. What mm -hmm. did communism in the 20th century actually do? It dragged places that were quote unquote underdeveloped that weren't being, that weren't able to be developed by the liberal regimes that tried to develop them, whether that was like Kerensky's government in this, in Russia, or whether that's the KMT in China, they, the liberal nationalists failed in developing these places. And so it seems like the only force that could, and Schwann kind of makes this point too, was a communist developmental regime, right? So like, I don't know. To answer your question, I'm, I'm not sure it really matters what was possible. It seems like the point was always to develop the country towards industrialization. And that's it. The communist yeah. project was replaced maybe as early as like the fucking civil war. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I didn't really think about it in that way. And that's, a, that's refreshing for me to consider it in those terms. I feel like I was taking what I took on board. Maybe I misread Schwang's intent, um, or maybe not, because what I was focusing on more was the sort of like existence of a seeming desire to um, to um, oh.
where were we? Apologies. My my fucking Wi-Fi went out as it is by Jack's internet. Oh, you know what? Actually, before we get back into talking about China, China. Uh, you know what? I, I was trying not to do that. This time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just I just saw that you've named the the, the recording like China Trump voice. <laughs> I didn't do that. I never do anything so crude or crass. Speaking of rats, the other day I was <laughs> by the, the other day, meaning yesterday, I was uh, just sat in my sat in my uh uh apartment right here, actually. And I was playing music and it was still daylight. And I look over to my left and there's just a mouse just staring at me. Oh. And I live up for American listeners on the third floor of a building for our English listeners on the second floor of the building. I think that's right. Yeah. And I was just like, I've never had mice problems in here before. When we moved in, it had been abandoned for like two years. Never had any fucking mice. I was just like, what the fuck are you doing? In the doing middle of here? summer. It's not like it's I know. heated inside. <laughs> and it just looked at me and I got up and it didn't move. And I was just like, come on. You don't yeah. be like, come on. That's get the funny, out of here. It's the funniest thing about those little feared mice or whatever they are. They're just not afraid of you at all they're just like yeah. oh i'm bad i found its little hole and i plugged it up i was like go bother somebody else so okay. <laughs> anyway dan uh-huh. you you got interrupted right when you were saying um what you were saying <laughs> <laughs> whatever it was that i was saying um yeah you suggested that communism in china failed almost immediately hmm. um and i think that is probably true right but i think the the version that i took away from it was I feel like this essay does open with this idea of the sort of what's what's missing in the world today is like a feasible, viable communist horizon. Mm. Um, And what I focused on in this essay so much was that there did seem to be a desire to institute socialism as on the road to communism, Uh, at least amongst the workers, if not among the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. Although I think that probably was at least part of it as well. Now they do end with this idea that actually what the Chinese Communist Party becomes is some, is just a system which is going to reproduce it, the, the, the last 20 or 30 years of its history and not one which is prepared to react to the radical critique of it that comes from um, the ultra left as it forms in the uh, cultural revolution. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but like I wanted more about the ultra left. I was like, yeah, ultra left, ooh, tell me left, more. Eh? <laughs> one thing that one thing that I also thought was really funny is that obviously translating any of the different Chinese languages into English, I would imagine, very difficult. But at some points, it was very funny because they do something like, and this policy created a new class of worker, uh, a new class of like urban rural workers uh, or in Chinese and Mandarin. And then they'd give you the word for it. They go translated literally urban rural workers. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I get a bit lost with all of the different like uh, class designations and uh, mm. uh, yeah. different like ranking systems and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um, anyway, come, coming back to the nature of the economy that was produced by the China, <laughs> the sort of the socialist developmental regime in China, um, I think the core point that they focus on is the idea that um, what the Chinese Communist Party become interested in is maximizing the accumulation of absolute surplus, absolute surplus value created by the Chinese peasant in the form of grain production um, and extracting that surplus from the countryside and using it to fund development in the cities. 
I think maybe I'm, hopefully I'm correct in using the terminology uh, abstract and relative, i.e. they're not interested in improving the productivity of the labor. Like that actually, in some respects, the productivity of the labor goes down, although they do seem to do some really interesting things. It's not like they're just, as seems to happen in um, in Russia in the 20s, it's not like they just want to brutally exploit the existing um, agricultural system that they've inherited from uh, the sort of pre-socialist era. Um, the, I mean, the, the the sort of like the Soviet system seems to be Russian peasants plus tractors in the 20s. That seems to be their answer. I think maybe <laughs> it's just a concession to material reality that they don't really have the possibility of um, approving, improving rather the 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 productive productivity of the peasant labor in China by um, adding machinery to it. But what they do do is organize massive works projects. They do seem to be able to rally huge amounts of labor to um, improve irrigation on land or sort of like maybe they even do like land reclamation and this kind of thing. And they do do some develop some other um, agricultural processes, develop new, more productive agricultural processes. Um, but they sort of imply that all of the sort of um, vacillation, all of the different aspects of various modes of production that sort of like fudge themselves together because they sort of like, they would describe this whole period, I think, as just sort of like a messy fudge of sort of like oscillating back and forth between various things. All of those are really designed toward appropriating grain and using it to uh, fund development under the conditions of autarky that they're kind of forced into especially after they're split with the Soviet Union, they really just become this sort of like autarkic national unit where um, transnational trade is totally closed off to them um, and they sort of have to try and develop under their own steam, I guess. Yeah, I think I think it definitely was that they, the only reason they did an absolute uh, uh, increase in their, in the, you know, exploitation of the peasantry was because they couldn't up labor productivity. I think it's exactly what you're saying. Like maybe they, if they could, they probably would have wanted to do, you know, peasantry plus tractor equals communism, but like, you know, they needed a lot more factories to do that. Right. Um, so going back, going back to the timeline a little bit, um, they basically, the Chinese communist party takes power officially 1949. That's when we get it. We get communism in China. It's done. We did it. Well done, everybody. You can put away the history books. China is communist now, but almost immediately after that, right, there's a massive wave of strikes, which is weird because they're communists, which I don't really understand. It seems like there shouldn't be strikes. Um, but, you know, it, it, they kind of frame it in this where it's like the workers in the coastal kind of industrial cities were like, what, we don't have communism yet? What the fuck? What's going on? So they go on these strikes. But it's also because, you know, the three groups that were doing this industrialization and restructuring of the entire Chinese economy were the military the urban Chinese Communist Party, right? And kind of like the non-Chinese Communist Party, urban skilled workers and elites, right? And so there was still this class conflict between the elites and the and the kind of non-skilled workers and all of this different stuff. So basically the Chinese Communist Party was doing that because they wanted to complete the bourgeois revolution. And then they would slowly buy out the people who owned the factories, right? And then boom, once the state owns all the factories, as we know, Dan, that's communism. Um, but uh, uh, they have to contend with this large strike wave, right? So they have to make some concessions in the early and mid fifties. And this is where we get the first of the like things you need to know, phrases you need to know from Chinese history, which is like the three and the five anti-campaigns. 
And the five antis, it's something like bribery, et cetera, waste, all of these different things. But they're basically ways of cracking down on um, the urban elite and the factory owners and the skilled workers to kind of make some concessions to uh, the workers. And again, it's kind of what you brought up. It's like this really interesting way that the Chinese Communist Party is able to kind of politic its way out of a disaster that would have crippled any other form of organization. They're kind of able to pit different factions off of each other, make it seem like they're doing something when they kind of actually really aren't. Because the goal of all of this is to basically collectivize the uh, rural areas of China and nationalize the urban industry, right? That's what they want to do. Everything that we're going to talk about from here on out, that's the goal. And uh, this was the first of the kind of like hiccup. Well, not the first, but it's like the first big hiccup that they had in the concession that they made. Um, and again, you get another number where it's like, oh, some people committed suicide, something like 800,000 people. <laughs> it's just like, oh, oh my God, what? I don't think, I don't remember if it was actually that much. It seems far-fetched that those were all just suicides as well. Um, but, you know, uh, a lot of people died. And again, the numbers are only going to start getting bigger. I mean, I've heard said in the past that like uh, quite a lot of the deaths attributed to the Cultural Revolution come from a sort of like differing culture around social shaming that that applies to China that sort of drove people to suicide in various situations that they wouldn't otherwise maybe do in other cultural circumstances. Um, so maybe I don't know whether that's plausible or not, or maybe there are things hiding in that figure. Bring <laughs> the, back capitalists committing suicide yeah. is what I say. You have failed. <laughs> Ha 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 ha. <laughs> um, and yeah, I don't know. I think we should probably kind of skip along a little bit just yeah. because should we just skip to the two hundred flowers? And Yeah, I mean, that, that was my first instinct was just to talk about the degree to which um, the Chinese Communist Party still seems finds it necessary to um, concede to the demands of Chinese workers on multiple different occasions. They sort of concede to something accept some criticism, not like the criticism very much, sort of crack down on some of the response, pit some sections of workers against other sections of workers to overcome the various criticisms kind of thing. Um, but yeah, what was it? Thousand Flowers campaign? 100 Flowers. 100 Flowers campaign is this sort of like response. When is it? 57, 56? This sort of yeah, initial response like to worker critique is to sort of like... Um, a solicit critique of the system from workers. Um, but obviously, from their perspective, that critique gets out of hand, would you say? Out of hand, indeed. And it's funny <laughs> because like, they go, okay. And I, I think I kind of misspoke. The Five Antis was basically just to restrict private business. And then the 100 Flowers campaign was to kind of these concessions, quote unquote, that they made to the workers. And the concessions were basically like, okay, you can criticize the Chinese Communist Party now. And then like a lot more people started criticizing the Chinese Communist Party, including the industrial workers that they supposedly represented. Uh, so they go, okay, enough of that. And then they institute the anti-rightist campaign, which is just, I love how literal uh, that is. The five anti is also literal. 100 flowers, not literal. There were probably more than 100 flowers in China at the time. Um, but the anti-rightist campaign was basically just them cracking down on a lot of the people who had criticized the government and also just another excuse to crack down on private industry again. Um, but it's interesting because they basically say, you know, um, don't just think of the kind of like autarkic nature of the Chinese Communist Party and the state that had formed. That was the thing that the only reason that those strikes, the strike wave failed, right? Because they basically said too that like, 
the workers involved in those strikes didn't weren't able to cohere around a singular goal, right? They weren't able to put forward singular demands. And it was just kind of general frustration and anger that wasn't really built around much. So the Chinese Communist Party didn't really have to do anything other than just either ride it out or just like imprison, deport, or murder the people who were involved. Mm-hmm. So they kind of say, you know, it was also kind of a lack of organization on the workers' part as well. Yeah. And I think this is one of the first times we, when we are introduced to some of the social divisions in, it's not the, it's not a working class exactly, but like the, the rural, no, the, sorry, rather the urban uh, working class. Um, some of the divisions that exist between old and young, between workers that can remember what it was like to work under, say, Japanese rule in Manchuria or something like that. And also some of the social divisions between um, established urban workers and sort of immigrant peasant workers. Um, and so what often ended up happening was that there'd be um, sections of the urban population who were underprivileged for various reasons by virtue of lacking some kind of age seniority or lacking the security that came with being a, uh, uh, an urban worker rather than an immigrant peasant worker that had recently moved to the city. Um, and so when you got circumstances where the young or the migrant workers were striking over for various reasons, you would actually get this reaction from other sections of the working class that would put these strikes and these rebellions down on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. So they were sort of like the Chinese Communist Party definitely held on to um, factions of support that, in this instance at least, were um, stronger than those ones that were in opposition to the Communist Party. Yeah, and we'd see this again and again, like after the Great Leap Forward as well, like temporary workers. We start to get workers who spend some time in the rural uh, part of the country during, you know, harvest or whatever. And then they kind of get shipped into, in, uh, when there's less labor needed on the fields, they get shipped into the factories to work there. Um, and there's a huge divide between the workers there and the full-time industry people, but we'll get there. Um, great leap forward, Dan, should we do it? Yes. So what's what, what we have during the middle part of the 50s is this kind of like um, effort to do Soviet-style um, development and central planning. Um, they even use the phrase five years plan. So there's a five year plan um, in the middle of the 50s. Then you have the 100 Flowers campaign. Um, and then what leads on from that is the um, Great Leap Forward. Um, and it takes different forms, right? We'll talk about it in a minute. There's a Great Leap Forward in the countryside and a Great Leap Forward in the city. And they sort of designed to achieve different things. Um, and one of the interesting things they say is, well, initially you could hear the phrase like great leap forward and imagine what's being done is a sort of intensified version of Soviet central planning, um, another five-year plan. It could be seen as contiguous with that phase. Um, but what, actually, what they actually say is the great leap forward is considerably different. And one of the things that it really emphasizes is actually a decentralization of decision-making um, a sort of an, an end to Soviet-style central planning um, and one that kind of like almost re-regionalizes planning. So this is another instance where you have this sort of like um, what, why it's necessary to start this piece with the dis- with a description of how the tributary mode of production functioned in China because what you have now is a sort of re-emergence of certain elements of that um, where certain workplaces, certain regions, 
um, are given a degree of autonomy to do um, sort of conduct their own sort of um, levels of planning. And what it also comes along with is this, this, particularly in the countryside, this intensification of the development of uh, cooperative farms and the, and it's sort of increase in the size of the economic unit that is this sort of cooperative farm that kind of becomes the um, agricultural commune um, and have similar processes going on in the city in terms of the in, sort of like the process of um, industrialization and nationalization. Um, but actually what all of these lead into is uh, a massive sort of catastrophic collapse in agricultural outputs, which eventually lead to famine. Yeah, not great. Not great. Not not a successful phase of um, Chinese history. And then they they immediately backpedal on it as well. It's just like, oh, well done. Excellent. But Mm -hmm. so I think the key point is what you're saying about decentralization of planning and of economic units, right? The kind of model of like, just keep industry in these Eastern cities where it already is, wasn't working. And so they were like, okay, well, we need more people working in industry. So let's put more industry on a smaller scale in these rural like communes, right? Let's open up a bunch of factories. I'm still like halfway, I'm still like 50% on whether or not this was a typo, but they said some, They said that during the first year of the Great Leap Forward, seven and a half million new factories sprouted up. It's like, how is that not a typo? Like, what is what is that? What is a factory? Like, is it uh, yeah, this might factories? be this might be two people not doing yeah. agricultural work, but actually like yeah, and a hamster on a wheel? Is that a factory? <laughs> yeah. Still though, that's just like even if it was just like five people in a steam engine, that's just like an unfathomable yeah. like yeah, yeah, yeah. statistic. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely yeah. insane. And so, of course, what this leads to is more people in those communes working in industry, which leads to less people working on agriculture and you know you that is as disastrous as it sounds because food productivity as you're saying goes down and it leads to famine but another part of that is that chinese peasants had always kind of traditionally had private plots of land where they kind of just used it as a you know fallback uh in terms of subsistence that would kind of you know if there was a famine they would always have what they just had on the little private plots and it was a bulwark against famine uh that's when the foreboding music played when I was reading this because it was just like, oh, right. And then those are gone and then nobody has anything to fall back on. And um, they almost brush past it here. They don't, but they almost brush past it. Tens of millions of people died in this in this era. You got yeah, this, people. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No. Yeah, this is one of the bits when I was like, are you are you really softening the edges of yeah. this so much that it becomes like suspicious? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's it's very grim. And they tell stories about, you know, people trying to harvest plants early and just eating green shoots. And so there just never was a harvest to begin with. And the people who ate those green shoots never got enough sustenance. Um, Very grim. And obviously, you cannot fucking blame people for wanting to, like, look after their interests when a famine is on the horizon. So, um, yeah, impossible to describe this as anything other than a complete disaster. I think that there are people who on the quote unquote left who would like to be like, but Hey, look at China now, look at the industry they have now, you know, pretty like, you know, nobody else could have done it. And it's also like, but it's just like, what a fucking evil thing to say. You know what I mean? Just like, I think, yeah. And that's not, that's not an extension of the great leap forward in any particularly significant way. Obviously there are, there are economic legacies that 
exist that, that continue after the Great Leap Forward. The entirety of the project is not destroyed, but um, capitalism in China now doesn't bear much relationship to that. One of the there was a few things that I wanted to say about that. One was there's this like one of the one of the other problems was I think presumably as a result of this decentralization of um, planning is you get even worse misreporting of productivity figures than they were already getting in the mid fifties when they were in the midst of sort of Soviet style planning and the five year plan. Um, so they've, they've, they there was this figure where it's sort of like they have to revise down their figures for agriculture production for that period by like two thirds or something, because they've just realized that it's just not that presumably that's not all misreporting. That's also um, uh, planning figures that were just wrong and expectations that weren't fulfilled. Um, and also it's worth bringing up one of the more, most significant um, parts of this period was a massive movement of people from the countryside to the cities, initially through this sort of like, this desire to bring more people into industrial work and then subsequently subsequently just uh fleeing to the cities away from uh famine struck um parts of the parts of the famine the famine struck um rural areas of china um a movement of peoples which has to be completely undone a few years later when we come out of the um great leap forward period right they then have to start forcing people back to the countryside because they realize that what they have to redo do is once again rebuild um the sort of agricultural system of china as a result of the sort of failures of the five of the great leap forward too many too many acronyms not acronyms phrases so that's yeah exactly and that's how we get the the rise of the hukou system right which is, still exists which is mm -hmm. pretty fucking insane and what this was, was, I guess, I'm not exactly certain to what extent it still exists, but it's basically a way of limiting where you could go and where you could live. It was a passport system, basically, right? And there were two designations, unsurprisingly, rural and urban. And after the Great Leap Forward, post-1958, this was inherited, this designation, which is just like, we're getting into period, uh, uh, I, like, I can barely even talk about this because it's like, Okay, if you didn't think it wasn't communism by now, the, the fucking like going back to like feudal inheritance <laughs> yeah. of like you cannot live in a city, yeah. matrilinear inheritance of <laughs> of, of one's class. <laughs> yeah, they basically use the phrase in this where they're like it basically it didn't begin to resemble it just was apartheid, right? Like this mm. was uh, not a very. I mean, again, you see why this was done. You understand why the Communist Party did this, but remains evil not a very not a very shining moment in socialist history um mm -hmm. if we can even call it socialist i suppose but yeah pretty brutal i was stunned when i was like i didn't i because i really had no idea that this was inherited the hukou system um pretty brutal yeah um and one thing that we also haven't talked about is the dan way system which again i believe still exists and it was this was a way of setting up in, I believe it was only just urban environments, but it's basically like your work group and your work. It's kind of like a mix between your work group and your neighborhood. And this was because there was such bad inflation during these periods and because it was very difficult to pay people good wages. What the Communist Party did was they set up these little kind of not communes, kind of neighborhoods, kind of just where you worked. We lived with everybody you worked with, where they... Uh, created like a massive welfare state. And this is kind of one of the positive outcomes of all of this is that, you know, infant mortality rates got better. I always forget if 
rising mortality rates or lowering mortality rates is better. Whatever the good one is, when more people are surviving, that's what happened. Um, There's better access to health care, you know, everything that comes along with a strong welfare state in these little Danway kind of cubes because you weren't getting paid a lot. The Chinese Communist Party was like, well, we still need our laboring force to survive. So we'll give them good health care or whatever. Um, And that's another legacy of all of this, because to some extent that still exists today. We'll let you know when Schwann 3 comes out to what extent it still exists. (laughs) Yeah, what's interesting through this is this general degradation through circumstances, not really through design, I don't think, of the idea of a wage system. Like there can can become points when it's not possible for people to subsist on wages. Um, And so you do, as you say, get this sort of socialization of... um, of various different um, reproductive systems uh, by necessity, I suppose. One of the things they say is a lot of resources go from resources that were designated toward industrial development actually become about also become about reproducing the workforce kind of thing. So there is this sort of like um, siphoning off of resources from one thing to try and meet another need, which is uh, reproductive rather than productive, I suppose. Um, yeah. And just to say on that too, like if like any, any socialists, I think who like look at this as like a paternalist, like, thank you socialism for giving us all of these stuff. If you aren't then turning around and being like, thank you, social Democrats in Scandinavia for doing the exact same thing, or thank you capitalists for, you know, everything that you've bestowed on workers after you've been forced to, that's kind of cognitive dissonance because it's the same thing. These were these were not done out of benevolence, these reforms. The welfare state was not created out of benevolence anywhere. It was created basically through class struggle and in China's case, out of pure necessity, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just an effort ameliorating. Um, in some way, in, in, under capitalism, it's, an, it's a requirement to reproduce the workforce and um, ameliorate discontent, I suppose. But, yeah. Yeah. So then after this, we we slowly start to see oh fuck actually oh my god we got the cultural revolution oh my god we got we got the shanghai to realize to we've got another 45 minutes to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> the i will say the shanghai commune stuff i feel like we should find a reading about that and just do an entire episode on it yeah. so i was really really fascinated by that quick 30 second thing shanghai was the most industrialized city in china as opposed to somewhere like beijing where it was mainly like teachers and uh you know kind of like it was the capitals so was like high level uh, party members, people like that. Shanghai produ- produced because of how industrial it was a lot of industrial discontent. Um, and there were factions of workers, right? You know, we talked about this a little bit. There were the rural workers who were bussed in to work part time temporarily through the Hukou system in the factories. Um, they had it a lot worse off even than the kind of like full time regular urban workers. Um, there was a lot of conflict between them. There was conflict between the workers in general and skilled workers, factory managers, party cadres. Um, and so suffice it to say there was like a rebellion of several hundred thousand people in Shanghai uh, in which several factions formed. They presented a large list of demands to the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese Communist Party was able to use kind of another element of Chinese society, the kind of scarlet guards as kind of, it seemed like scapegoats to be like, they're your enemies, you know, sure, we'll totally do all of these demands, totally. But then basically that was just buying them time to send in the military and kind of uh, by hook or by crook crush the Shanghai commune. But um, 
Yeah, particularly fascinating. And again, just fascinating to see the same language used explicitly to refer to the Paris Commune, just to remind you that like, oh, right, even though we're talking about like the 1950s, this was an extension of like the old European labor movement. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a really interesting passage when they were talking about the the left. Well, I don't know whether it's interesting, it's sort of like rousing point where they were sort of commending the left communists during this era for not necessarily having because um, they, they would make all these declarations toward wanting to create some kind of commune state, you know, and sort of like drawing a legacy from the Paris Commune, but actually didn't really have very many concrete proposals on what it actually meant to um, have a lineage of the Paris Commune. What was the Paris Commune? How are we going to transfer that model into organizing Chinese communist society? Um, but they are also very defensive of just that kind of desire that was represented by those elements of the uh chinese working class i suppose um sort of wanted to say something coming back to the legacy the idea of like inheritance and genetic inheritance the the early stages of the cultural revolution started in universities amongst students who um thought they had good revolutionary genetics almost like they were they were the, the good workers they were the, they were the, yeah exactly yeah the good workers and the bad workers and they were the descendants of like um revolutionaries and they were their parents were good cadre members and so they were sort of like able to go to university and then set out to sort of like have these purges against the bad workers the people with bad revolutionary <laughs> inheritance um which i mean it's just is an absurd, absurd place to have gotten to i suppose um and sort of to wonder how it sort of descended to that point um and the only thing i sort of want to say on there on what they say about the cultural revolution is to say that when they're addressing the nature of the the just sheer quantity of deaths that happen um they sort of present the 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 deaths that result as as the uh, and the the figures that are put forward of people who die during the cultural revolution they sort of describe it as kind of like a equivalent to a white reaction against the reds in like using that terminology from soviet history russian history right like actually what this is is uh reactionary repression and reprisals against sort of like the last vestiges of that kind of like communist desire that existed in uh the populace of china um that wanted to defend and continue transitioning to war or attempting to transition toward communism no, no matter how forlorn that effort was kind of thing um and really what that was, was the sort of last, the Cultural Revolution was the last defeat of that. And that's why they end their essay here. Um, the next essay being one on the actual beginnings of the development of Chinese capitalism. Um, and the Cultural Revolution comes at the end of this period where the Chinese developmental, the socialist develop, developmental regime in China comes to an end. Um, and the sort of like experiment finally fails, I suppose. 2050, Dan, they're going to have communism in Oh, yeah. <laughs> I guarantee it. <laughs> That's all right, then. I take it all back. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, they, they make the point that the, you know, the Cultural Revolution, all of these things that happened, they say that the two decades in between the Great Leap Forward and the beginning of the Reform Era, which is where this ends, um, they're always portrayed, right, as, like, factional struggles between Mao's true line and, like, evil Deng and, like, the capitalist rotors, on the other hand. 
but again they're they're very good at parsing kind of like the crap from the materialist history and they basically just say that actually those were just epiphenomena right of the kind of like social and economic crises that were going on in china at the time um and we often forget that right when we're studying history everybody forgets it every communist forgets it when we're studying soviet history because everybody has their favorite bolshevik and it's like man if only bukharin was in charge or if only julius martov was there with them at the beginning everything would have been fine but in reality you know yeah material circumstances actually matter um is is there anything else in the actual the history of it all that we need to go through the cultural revolution that's the bit that i feel i think like the less least capable of talking about yeah, let's just put a proviso on the whole thing that this has been our sort of like skirting over um, uh, uh, an important and detailed piece of history and one or one do one's own reading and research. Um, but I'm sort of happy that we've hit the, the key beats, I suppose, and mentioned the significant phases of development. I think so. College try. Yeah. Two things. One... What do you make of this non-mode of production stuff? Um, it feels a little bit teleological to me and feels like kind of lazy. Like I understand what they're doing. I, you know, they're like, there's no law of value. There's no this. It was literally just the the military and the party running around trying to do things. Nothing really governed this to make it a coherent mode of production. But also like ever since we started reading the systems theory stuff, I think ever since we spoke to June and she was just like, oh yeah, Marx was basically just talking about systems theory when he was talking about, you know, modes of production and stuff. Like at the end of the day, things got produced. You know what I mean? I mean, there were massive famines and millions of people died, but like things got produced and there was organization there. And so I think like calling it a non-mode of production is maybe a bit too abstract mm -hmm. and Marx, mm -hmm. Marx brained. It's like, yeah, it doesn't have an easy name like capitalism or like tributary, right? But it's like, it was something. It wasn't like there was no production, which is what I feel like. I, again, I think I'm missing a little bit and I understand why they're doing this, but it's like there was social organization. So y with y you can't really say that it wasn't a mode of production. You just there's no easy word for it. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends. You just need what need a definition of mode of production and you need to know what definition of mode of production they're using. Um, I guess what they're saying is there just isn't a singular law which sure. dictates how production works. But I've heard people say that the, the only coherent mode of production that's ever existed is capitalism. Yeah. Um, and every other mode of production could be described as a sort of hybrid mode or a non-mode or what have you. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's useful in certain contexts. Um, it's probably useful in the context of resisting or avoiding um sort of describing a period of history with a piece of terminology which might be in some way ideological or dogmatic like you might want to from your particular political perspective describe something as state capitalist or i don't know what and um and what they might be trying to avoid here is just doing something like that this is that's a concession to their efforts to do good historical materialism and an effort to avoid uh, rhetoric and ideological terminology that might all be all that's happening i mean i'd be interested to read more about it you know so um, yeah way more complicated too yeah. than even the soviet union you know what i yeah, mean yeah yeah um yeah 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 so i suppose you're right we need a definition of mode of production i suppose you're correct <laughs> yeah let Famous us know. Last words <laughs> yeah <laughs>
And then the other thing is, how does this make you feel about like old old school workers movements? This was anything but an old school workers movement that eventually took power, right? This was like communist ideology fused with millenarian peasant rebellions, right? But like, how does this make you feel about like the kind of e economistic, uh, get all the workers together by nature of their relationship to the mode of the means of production, create a party, that party then does socialism. Because for me, like I'm coming away from this being like, it feels like communism failed as soon as the communist party took power, you know what I mean? When it became incredibly apparent that the function of the system was to develop China and not to like, and you know, I, I have no doubt that like most of the people involved thought that they were doing communism, right? In terms of like high level people, I have no doubt that they thought that this was the only way that they could do it. Maybe it fucking was, you know what I mean? Like I have no idea, but um, it does seem to be more and more apparent to me that like, yeah, just looking at workers as workers and not as the kind of like many different struggles that go into creating the like, you know, life of a working class person, as crazy as that sounds, like those are the things that need to be tapped into and not necessarily just like you are a worker, partially because workers like relationship to means of production now in places like the UK and America are like convoluted more so than a hundred years ago, right? But also because like the biggest proletarian movement we've seen in, in, you know, in America in the last few decades has always had to do with like police brutality against black Americans. You know what I mean? And it's like, obviously that's an epiphenomena of like capitalism, but it's also like when you're organizing around these things, it seems very difficult to just be like, you know, your relationship to the means of production. Like you actually have to speak to what I don't know. I'm going off on a tangent now, but I think mm -hmm. that like, what I'm really saying is that like, the mass party thing as it existed a hundred years ago, I'm feeling a little bit more skeptical about it now. You know what I mean? Um, at least as it relates to just, you know, an economistic mass party, I wouldn't know what to call it. You could still call it a party, but I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I maybe have a different perspective on it or a different thing, different things that I would like to emphasize. I mean, the, the first thing just sort of like factually from the text that comes now to my mind is that they very definitely don't, they very intentionally say that the the Chinese working class is not proletarian. Like the, the you've got the, you've got the peasants existing in the countryside and then the people who, who live in the cities, nobody is living under, their argument is that nobody is living under capitalist social relations. They're no, therefore none of them are actually proletarian. So it's, and other than the sort of like small pockets of capitalist development that pre-existed the socialist takeover, um, none of these people have ever been proletarians. So if you're looking at a purely economic, economistic or me mechanistic sense, you're like, well, how how do these people how are these people supposed to represent the sort of like salvation of the world um if if you were coming from a sort of strictly orthodox marxist reading of the situation you would might say well these people couldn't possibly achieve socialism um for themselves or for the world um i wouldn't endorse that position i don't think i think what ex what interests me the most is coming back to this idea of a communist horizon right like there were people, avowed communists, who, from multiple different perspectives, maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong, had this image of overcoming the capitalist mode of production and instituting a classless society. Um, 
And that seems to be the thing that's most important when it comes to identifying things that are lacking in our current society beyond like mass working class parties or um, we do, I, I feel like we don't need to recreate the mass socialist party of a hundred years ago, but maybe we do need to rekindle sort of like a non-capitalist desire in some form. Um, maybe that's far too speculative and not material enough. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. What I'm taking away from this is what if Jan Appel sailed to China instead of the <laughs> Soviet Union, mm. got involved with the Chinese civil war and then was like right of disposal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> then we'd have communism. I was like, in my mind, I was like, what if he sailed there and spoke to Chairman Mao? But I was like, wait a minute, this is like 30 years too early for him to just be like, ah, Communist Party, you're in charge. Yes. Mm. Although I actually don't imagine he was there in the 20s. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Somebody needs to just like sneak a copy of the fundamental principles <laughs> of communist production and distribution <laughs> into like Hu Jintao. What, what's, the, what's the current chairman Chinese? Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping. I'm going like <laughs> 10 years ago, wrong person. <laughs> Xi Jinping's like briefcase and then there we go He's 25 like, years of socialism there you go start the clock <laughs> that's why he recently just banned all mentions of lenin in like public curriculum i see because ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh, he's such an avowed council communist <laughs> exactly exactly well i think the only other thing to take away from this is what we began it with which is no need to take sides in all of this the reason that chuang is studying this at least ostensibly is to be like you know how did we get to where we are, right? How did we get to where we are? That's how you understand your material circumstances and maybe how you can actually organize strategy. Um, and not because you want to have more, you know, ammunition to side with Mao on online forums, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. interesting stuff. This is fascinating. Maybe in 10 years, we read the second Yeah, let's <laughs> edition. definitely do that. Yeah, so the, third, so the third edition of Swag hasn't come out yet. I don't think so. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I've got the second one and I started reading it, but I was like, I don't have any of the necessary historical background to understand what's going on here. So it just dropped me into the reform era and I was like, I don't know what this means. <laughs> well, maybe you do now. Maybe I do now, or at least what Chuang wants me to think. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. Even though it was, it was a bit this. tough. Yeah. People, it's funny because everybody has like their opinions on every moment of the Soviet Union, but it's just like, man, I didn't know any of this shit. And it's just like a massive uh, Western bias in my like, mm -hmm. you know, communist thought to just be like, oh, what, the, the biggest country on the planet is like run by the Chinese Communist Party? I don't need to know about that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, and what has been reiterated, well, what's been. What I've learned from this is the absurdity of ever having been a Western Maoist, I guess. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I take it all back. I take it all back. This was just reminding me of the time when uh, the guy from Socialist Appeal listened to the podcast and he found me after that and was like, interesting, I had no idea you were a third worldist, Jack. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> it's like, all right. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Dan, thank you so much for doing this. Um, yeah, thank you, Dan. Yeah, we'll be back in two weeks. And um, something great. No doubt. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Bye-bye.
music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time. Oh, my God.